Do you, do you think of yourself as a leader? I went to a, a small Christian college in the middle of nowhere in Indiana, Taylor University. We were the Trojans because that's the kind of mascot that Christian colleges have. <laughs> right? Whitworth, pirates? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. For Jesus. <laughs> For Jesus, yep. Yeah. Uh, and as I think many Christian colleges uh, are about, they were, everything was about leadership. They were all about developing young leaders, releasing young leaders into the world. I got, I got really tired of it. I, uh, I didn't want anything to do with leadership. I was, I was at least somewhat self-aware to know that as a 20, 21-year-old, I had so little experience in life, um, and I, I just had no desire to lead. Uh, I was fine with others doing that. We would have group projects for classes, uh, and the group projects would turn into these like leading competitions, like who could be the leaderiest leader. Uh, and I was like, I'll just take notes. But I've, I've learned since then uh, that some of that tendency is simply a, a personality style that I have where I, I tend to, my, my, my initial response is to simply sit back to listen, uh, to be invited into conversation rather than elbowing my way in and uh, getting the first word in. Uh, but I also have learned that uh, I am, in fact, a leader. And that part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a leader. We are disciples who are called to make disciples. And that means that you and I, no matter whether we are introverted or extroverted, no matter our personality style, that we have a call to lead in some capacity. We have, uh, we have people in our spheres of influence, right? Maybe that's another way to think of, of how it is that we're called to lead. Uh, it's to think of the people that we have some influence, some impact in their lives. Uh, I, I do think that we all have a bit of a mental model, though, of what a leader ought to look like, right? Someone who's strong-willed, who has a strong, outgoing personality, uh, someone who's extroverted, most likely, uh, maybe even someone who's male, if we're honest. Maybe those are the, the, the mental models of those who should be leaders that we have. Uh, I, I've had the pleasure this last year of getting to know Denise Daniels, who's a professor at Seattle Pacific, a professor in... Uh, Leadership management, management leadership, somewhere, something in that, in the business school. And I've heard her share a talk on a number of occasions where she just references a, a variety of studies that they've done on leaders, specifically around the question of gender. And, uh, and she, there's a number of studies that show that, yes, we do have these mental models of what a leader should look like. And it tends to be that kind of what's typically associated with, uh, you know, masculine traits, sort of outgoing, uh, Someone that's maybe even a little bit stubborn, kind of driving, can really, can really take charge. Uh, and that less so do we think of leaders who have nurturing capabilities, things that we might more associate with feminine characteristics. She then goes on to cite a number of studies that show that actually organizations, companies that are led, um, that are led by women are, in a number of areas are statistically more effective, more efficient, more a lot of really good things um, because they are led by, uh, by leaders who are not necessarily of the style that we might always think of. And the gist of all of this is that no matter our own personality style and gifting, 
God has gifted each of us and equipped us differently to lead in different ways. And that as the church, as we come together with our various gifts, we lead each other and we lead the world towards the gospel. We are in Paul's second letter to Timothy. That's where we're spending the next several months. And Paul is writing to this young pastor. And the sense you get as you read this is that Timothy might not think of himself as a leader. He, that might be a title that he's just a little bit hesitant to take on. But Paul is writing to him to encourage him and to strengthen him and to show him just how, even in his own gifting, how it is that he can be uh, the kind of disciple that, that leads others, that influences others. Another way to think of this, too, um, Scott Cormode, who's a professor of leadership at Fuller, says this. Uh, we don't have followers we have people that are entrusted to our care. We don't have followers. We have people who are entrusted to our care. And that is each one of us, right? Even sometimes those people entrusted to our care are actually in positions of authority over us, but we are still entrusted to, to care for them, to, to influence them, to lead them. And then there's, of course, all kinds of examples of parents with their kids, Spouses leading each other, um, influencing our neighbors, uh, the, the parents of our kids' friends. All kinds of people that we are, are called to have some, uh, some influence in their lives. People entrusted to our care. So that is, that's kind of the who of leadership. But then there's this, um, this where and, or uh, yes, the direction of our leading uh, and also how we are leading people. And the answer to both of those is the gospel. And that's what Paul is writing to Timothy about today in the passage that we're going to look at. Um, that the, the strength and the energy to lead and to do the work that Timothy's called to do comes from the gospel. And the direction, the aim that he is both moving and that he is leading people along, that also is the gospel. So that begs the question, what is the gospel? The word itself means good news. You've probably heard that before. Uh, it comes from the Greek word uh, euangelion, which is also where we get the word evangel from. So it's this, it's this message. It's this message of good news. So when we refer to the Gospels, right, when we're talking about the books of the Bible, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we often say it's the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Mark. But really what we should say is it's the Gospel of according to Matthew and Mark. It's the good news, not about Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's the good news about Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, uh, according to these four eyewitnesses. However, sometimes it can be helpful, I think, to have the gospel in a more succinct form, right? It took Luke 20-some chapters to, to explain the gospel, to tell the story. Uh, sometimes it can be helpful to have it in more of a bullet point uh, succinct form. And that's what Paul does here uh, in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. So we're going to read, we're going to start in verse 8, uh, just a couple of verses, and we're really going to hone in on just two verses this morning where Paul does that, where he kind of takes the gospel and just sort of bullet points some of the key elements of what is the gospel message, what is the good news in Jesus Christ. So it'll be on the screen, but if you want to turn in your Bibles or on your phones, to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 8. 
So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. As we read it, as we hear it, as we ponder it, by your Spirit's power, would you work its way into our heart? By your Spirit's power, would you begin to change and shape and mold our heart that we might be more convinced of the truth of the gospel, that we might fall more in love with you, Jesus, that we might have the strength the energy and the love and the the passion to to go and engage this world, to lead those that we have contact with, to lead them to the gospel. So Lord, lead us this morning. Amen. So we're simply going to hone in on verses 9 and 10. Ed, if you want to put that up, that's it right there. And uh, this is really Paul's kind of bullet point version of, of the gospel that he's writing to Timothy, it's similar. So once a month, we recite together the Apostles' Creed, right? Which is this succinct uh, kind of a bullet point list of, of the essentials of the gospel, the essential things that Christians have believed for thousands of years. And I love it. I love that we do it. It connects us to the history of the church, connects us to churches around the world that are doing this. Uh, and it's just a fantastic reminder of what we believe to be true. Uh, and, and especially when we get to the end of it, it really just becomes this like bullet point list of things we believe, right? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the life everlasting. Amen. So verses 9 and 10, though it's not arranged in bullets, kind of is, uh, has that similar feel to it. Each little phrase deserves some serious reflection. So I'm going to just walk us slowly through these two verses this morning. It's important to remember, too, um, that Paul is, uh, Paul is writing this to Timothy, and he's writing to someone, as I've mentioned earlier, who he's calling forth to lead his church, someone that maybe feels a little bit hesitant of that. And, and so that, I think, colors and shapes uh, what elements of the gospel Paul highlights here. So what is the gospel? What is the good news? He has saved us, and we'll stop there. Right? It's an invitation to confession, to confess that we need saving. Another way to ask this might be to ask, uh, do I, or to ask ourselves, do we really have a sense that we need saving? Do we really believe that outside of Christ that we are lost? Sometimes it's easier to say that about others or <laughs> our world in general, but to be able to say that about ourselves, do we need saving? Uh, maybe another way to look at it is, um, 
what's at stake if I'm not saved? If Christ doesn't save us, is there something uh, existentially at stake for my life and for my future if I'm not saved? So the good news actually begins maybe with some bad news. That is, we need saving. And so the invitation is simply to confess that, to confess our need. That in our sin, we are not just like a little bit lost, but we are totally lost. That even our good deeds are tainted with sin and cannot save us. But the good news, and it is good news, is that we are saved, that Christ does save us. He rescues us. I think I like that word. Uh, maybe, maybe the word salvation or saved has become a little too churchy, um, but the word rescue, that's, it's got a little more teeth to it. The Jesus Storybook Bible uh, is a great, uh, very simplified version of the scriptures that we give to all the families who have their kids baptized here. Uh, and it refers throughout the whole thing, it refers to Jesus as the great rescuer. Uh, and I like, I like that. That's helpful for me. So the first element of the good news is that God has saved us. He has saved us from our sin, but the second element reminds us that he has saved us to something as well. He's called us to a holy life. So we are saved from our sin and we are saved to a holy life, to live a holy life. Um, I, I love that it's, we're not saved to uh, a series of doctrines. We're not saved to... Um, a series of, uh, uh, you know, a, a list of morals, a list of uh, do these, don't do these things. We're saved to a holy life, encompassing every aspect of our lives. And the word holy, uh, sanctified, set apart, different, changed. So I, I found myself this week as I was reflecting on this passage, uh, I mean, maybe some of you are, are really good at self-reflection. For me, it, I, it takes me a while. <laughs> it takes, I, have to, I have to find a quiet place. I have to kind of remove distractions, put my phone somewhere else. Um, and I, I found myself just thinking through different areas of my life and what it might mean to be called to holiness in those areas. I, I, was, I was thinking about my eating. How, do, how does my eating uh, reflect a call to holiness? What's my relationship with food? What about my body? How do I view my body? Do I get my self-worth from my body? Or is there another, another perspective that, that God gives me my self-worth, and that's part of my holy calling, uh, is not derived from the fact that I don't have the luscious head of hair that I used to have. But also, do I treat my body as a gift from God? Do I steward it? Do I take care of it? My relationships, my money, my time, all of these are areas that God is calling us to holiness. And that just means it's calling us to, to be set apart, to pay attention to his desires for us in every area of our lives. And that, that takes some thought, that takes some reflection. So, we are saved from our sin, and we are saved to a holy life. The next invitation is an invitation to humility. Humility. This is something that Paul repeats in many of his letters, that our salvation is not because of anything that we have done. Not because of anything that we have done. Paul keeps coming back to this 
foundational truth that God's grace in our lives is a free gift and there is nothing that we can do to earn it. One of the most known passages that speaks to this is from Ephesians. He says, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. So we we receive it, we believe it, but we don't earn it. We don't go after it and get it. It's not from yourselves. It's just a gift of God, not by works, so that none of us can boast. So the invitation is to humility because it's not because of anything we've done. Next, uh, there's an invitation to gratitude. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of the world, but it's now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So our salvation lies not in anything that we've done, but completely in God's desire to do it. He delights in saving us. Isn't that good news? And he set out a plan to do that long before any of us were around. Before time itself began, this was his plan. His plan was to save his people, to rescue his people by sending Jesus, by coming as God in the flesh. Again, uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I I would highly recommend not just to children. Uh, It it talks about Jesus as the great rescuer, but what it does is it tells the whole story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and highlights how God's plan to rescue us has been in place from the very beginning. This was not a something, you know, our, our sin was not something that took God by surprise, but he has been desiring to do this from before time began. Uh, and then in Christ's coming 2,000 years ago, in the historical event of that, uh, his plan has been revealed. It's, it's this secret that's been made known. The cat's out of the bag now. This has been God's hope all along, his desire all along is to save us in Christ. Paul talks about the mystery of salvation a lot, but the way he talks about it is that it's a mystery that's been revealed. It's not hidden anymore. God's plan has always been to save his people in Christ. So Paul moves on. Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is good news. It's important, I think, that we remember for a moment who is writing this and who he's writing it to. Paul, uh, as Summer talked about last week, is in a dungeon. He is in a prison, and he knows, uh, we'll encounter this a little later in this letter, but he knows that the end is near. He's not getting out of jail this time. Uh, Tradition has it that Paul was uh, executed um, uh, during Nero's reign uh, shortly after this letter was written. He knows that the end is near, and yet he writes full of hope and joy because he knows that death is not the end. He knows that death is not the final word. And that is good news for us. The last phrase, he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, is kind of a positive inverse of Christ destroying death. He's destroyed death, and he's revealed and gives freely this life and this immortality. Uh, It feels strange to use the words immortality, but it's really true that the life that Christ gives us cannot be defeated even by death. Death instead becomes a doorway to forever being in the presence of God. John Stott says it this way, that that death has been robbed of its power. It's like a snake with no venom in its bite. 
and it cannot harm us. This, my friends, is the gospel. This is the good news. I was reading in John Stott's commentary, uh, and he, he was speaking of just how vast and expansive the gospel is. I think sometimes we think of it and we assume, or we, we hear it just as applicable to what do we do with our, our sins, those bad thoughts that we think and the bad things that we do. Well, Jesus forgives us, and so we don't, you know, we don't suffer the consequences for our sins. And that's true, but it's, it's so much broader than that. Listen to Stott's explanation of salvation. He says, salvation is a majestic word. It denotes the comprehensive purpose of God by which he justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies his people, first pardoning our offenses and accepting us as righteous in his sight through Christ, and then progressively changing us, transforming us by his spirit into the image of his son until we become finally like Christ in heaven with new bodies in a new world. So this is the gospel. This is the direction that our lives are moving. This is the aim of our lives, is to live more and more fully into this gospel. This is also the aim and the direction that we are to be leading those around us. Paul's writing this to Timothy, this young pastor who is unsure of his ability, of his role, um, maybe a little timid. Um, And Paul's saying, this is where you're leading people. And not only that, This gospel is the thing that's going to give you the strength to do that. It's going to give you the energy and the power to do that. We've been uh, mentioning on and off, uh, especially as a council, we've been talking about the five people that we really sense God has put in our lives for us to to influence, for us to to lead, for us to, to love, to love them into the gospel. Uh, We've invited you to do the same thing, to think about five people that you interact with, five people that uh, God might be calling you to lead in some way towards the gospel. Maybe some of those folks have been coming to mind as we've been reading through this. Maybe Maybe there's one particular aspect, one particular element of the gospel that you think, oh, this person needs to hear this. I think sometimes we, we, uh, we feel like we need to fully explain the vastness and expansiveness of the gospel every time we're going to share it with someone. Um, and, and I think that we, we can listen better to people and really get a sense for, okay, what is, what is the one piece of the gospel that this person needs to hear? I think that's true for us too, right? Maybe there's one particular element of the gospel that Paul describes that that's what you need to hear. That's, what, what, that's the invitation to you this morning, is to consider what area of my life do I need to think imaginatively about how I can live in a holy way in this area. Maybe, maybe for you this week, it's, uh, it's releasing that fear of death, really trusting, really trusting that Christ has defeated death, that it holds no power over us. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, I'd invite you to come with those two things in mind, your own gratitude 
for the gospel. And maybe, maybe for a particular aspect that Paul's highlighted here to Timothy. Come with your gratitude for that. And come with the person that is on your heart. Bring them with you in prayer as you come to receive the bread and the cup. Come praying that they too may one day experience and know the love of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are called to lead. That is part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But we don't have to lead out of our own strength. God fills us with his spirit. The power of the gospel gives us strength and energy and vision to influence those that we, uh, that we encounter in our homes, in our lives, in our work. So as we come to the table, would you take a moment with me just in silent prayer? in gratitude to God for the good news, the gospel, uh, and praying for those in our lives that, uh, that need it, as we all do.